Welcome to the August 17th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, pembrolizumab after autologous stem cell transplantation in patients with peripheral T-cell lymphoma. Newly reported Phase two study results show that blocking PD-1 with pembrolizumab had a favorable safety profile and demonstrated promising activity, supporting further confirmatory studies in this setting. Up next, germline genetic predisposition to myeloid neoplasms in patients with hypoplastic bone marrow. Researchers report mutations that are significantly associated with cytopenias in adulthood in these patients and pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants were linked to severe cytopenias and advanced myeloid malignancies. And finally, are monocytes and their descendants less plastic than previously thought? Investigators have identified four functionally specialized monocyte subsets that derive from specific myeloid progenitor lineages. They show that the fate of these monocyte subsets is epigenetically scripted, with little flexibility after differentiation begins, even under conditions of stress. Our first research article is a phase two study of pembrolizumab after autologous stem cell transplantation in patients with T-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And the first author is Wanasha H. Merrill of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. Most subtypes of peripheral T-cell lymphoma, or PTCL, have a poor prognosis and limited treatment options. High-dose chemotherapy, followed by autologous stem cell transplantation, or ASCT, in first remission is an option for some PTCL subtypes. Yet after ASCT, more than 50% of patients will relapse, and most will die of their disease. It is also worth noting that there is no randomized clinical trial data confirming the benefit of ASCT in this setting. Altogether, these observations highlight a substantial unmet need for new treatment strategies. Toward that end, there has been considerable interest in the use of immune checkpoint inhibitors in PTCL. PD-1 inhibitors have shown a high level of activity in Hodgkin lymphoma and primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma and PD-L1 expression has frequently been demonstrated in PTCL and the associated tumor microenvironment. However, checkpoint inhibitors have shown variable results in PTCL. Some studies have been encouraging, while others disappointing. Furthermore, some early reports raised concerns that PD-1 inhibitors could induce hyperprogression in certain PTCL subtypes. That leads us to the present Phase two study of the PD-1 inhibitor pembrolizumab after ASCT in patients with PTCL. Until now, post-ASCT consolidation with a PD-1 inhibitor hasn't been explored in PTCL, according to Merrill and co-authors. Use of a PD-1 inhibitor after autologous transplant is an appealing strategy, authors say, since this is a time of minimal disease burden. They add that active immune remodeling post-transplant may be an ideal milieu to induce T-cell anti-tumor immunity. Accordingly, 
Merrill and co-authors sought to determine the safety and efficacy of the anti-PD-1 monoclonal antibody pembrolizumab used as consolidation therapy following ASCT in patients with PTCL in first remission. Patients received 200 mg of pembrolizumab intravenously every three weeks for up to eight cycles. Treatment was started within 21 days from post-ASCT discharge. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival measured at 18 months after ASCT. A total of 21 PTCL patients were treated, all of whom had received one prior line of treatment. The most common subtype was PTCL-NOS in 52%, followed by angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma in 19%, extranodal natural killer, NK, T-cell lymphoma in 14%, ALK-negative anaplastic large-cell lymphoma in 10%, and monomorphic epitheliotropic intestinal T-cell lymphoma in 5%. Of 21 patients treated, 14 or 67%, completed the eight cycles of treatment. 13 of the 21 patients were alive and progression-free at 18 months post-ASCT. In patients with chemosensitive PTCL, the expected 18-month progression-free survival rate after ASCT is about 40 to 50%. Based on that, authors hypothesized that pembrolizumab consolidation would improve the 18-month rate of progression-free survival from 45% to 70%. And the estimated 18-month progression-free survival was in fact 83.6%, with a 95% confidence interval of 68 to 100. The study was too small to determine trends in outcomes by PTCL subtype. However, the authors remarked that none of the three patients with extranodal natural killer, NK, T-cell lymphoma, experienced progression during the study period. Pembrolizumab given after ASCT had an acceptable safety profile, authors said, with toxicities consistent with previous pembrolizumab studies. Grade 3 toxicities occurred in four patients, or 19%, and grade 4 toxicities occurred in one patient, or 5%. There were no grade 5 toxicities. One-third of patients experienced immune-related adverse events limited to grades 1 to 3, including transaminitis, diarrhea, and hypothyroidism, among others. The authors conclude that PD-1 blockade with pembrolizumab after ASCT is feasible, with favorable safety and promising activity, supporting further confirmatory studies. In a commentary, Enrica Marchi of the University of Virginia Cancer Center said this is a, quote, small but positive study that just achieved the primary endpoint, unquote. Although follow-up in this report is not available beyond the 18-month time point, Marchi said this strategy appears promising. Marchi also noted that PTCLs are biologically heterogeneous, and results of the present study suggest that extranodal natural killer, NK, T-cell lymphoma, seems to be particularly sensitive to PD-1 inhibition. That raises the question of whether the immune checkpoint inhibitors could be ideally suited for specific disease subtypes. And while ASCT is often considered for fit PTCL patients, its use remains a topic of debate due to the lack of randomized data and variable results in retrospective analyses. Ultimately, Marchi said, the scientific community advancing the care of PTCL 
need to collaborate to answer these fundamental questions that remain open. The next research article is titled Prevalence and Clinical Expression of Germline Predisposition to Myeloid Neoplasms in Adults with Marrow Hypocellularity. The first author is Elisabetta Molteni from the Department of Molecular Medicine at University of Pavia in Italy. To set the stage for this study, let's go back to the 2016 revision to the World Health Organization classification of myeloid neoplasms and acute leukemia. That revision introduced several major changes in classification, one of which was the addition of a section on myeloid neoplasms with germline predisposition. At the time, it was becoming increasingly clear that a subset of myeloid neoplasms and acute leukemias were occurring on a background of a predisposing germline mutation. Adding this category to the WHO classification raised awareness of the need to document underlying genetic defects at the time of diagnosis and to screen family members who may also be affected. Yet there were few prospective studies to guide expert recommendations on testing and surveillance. Prior investigations provided some insights on frequency of germline predisposition and prognosis. However, these studies primarily looked at young adults, selected due to family history or clinical suspicion. The present study by Molteni and colleagues looks at germline predisposition to myeloid neoplasms, specifically in patients with marrow hypocellularity. Hypoplastic bone marrow is common in adults with late-onset inherited bone marrow failure syndromes. It's also characteristic of acquired hematologic disorders such as aplastic anemia and hypoplastic MDS, and it's been reported in patients with cytopenias of undetermined significance. Molteni and co-authors sought to define the prevalence and degree of expression of germline variants that predispose to myeloid neoplasms in these patients. They studied 402 consecutive adults investigated for unexplained cytopenia and reduced age-adjusted bone marrow cellularity. Germline mutation analysis was performed using a panel of 60 genes previously implicated in predisposition to myeloid neoplasms. Altogether, 27 out of 402 subjects carried germline variants classified as pathogenic or likely pathogenic. That's nearly 7% of patients with germline variants causative of a predisposition syndrome or disorder. Of those 27 patients, 20 had heterozygous mutations in genes such as DDX41 and GATA2 that are causative for autosomal dominant disorders. Another six had mutations in genes such as FANCA that are causative of autosomal recessive syndromes. And one male patient had a mutation in GATA1 that's causative of an X-linked recessive condition. About two-thirds of the patients were diagnosed with a myeloid neoplasm. That's 18 out of the 27 patients with pathogenic or likely pathogenic germline variants. The remaining eight patients were diagnosed with idiopathic or clonal cytopenia of undetermined significance. The most common predisposition disorder identified in this large cohort of patients with marrow hypocellularity were DDX41-associated predisposition, Fanconi anemia, and GATA2 deficiency syndrome. DDX41-associated predisposition was identified in 12 patients. That included 10 of the patients with myeloid neoplasm 
and two with cytopenias of undetermined significance. Other common predisposition disorders included Fanconi anemia in four patients and GATA2 deficiency syndrome in three patients. The rest were rhizopathy, severe congenital neutropenia, diamond black fan anemia, RUNX1-related familial platelet disorder, and Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome, each observed in one to two patients in this study cohort. Patients with predisposition disorders were significantly younger than patients without predisposition disorders. Predisposition disorders were also associated with increased risk of severe or multiple cytopenias and increased risk of advanced myeloid malignancy. By contrast, there were no significant associations between predisposition syndromes and family of cancer or personal history of multiple tumors. It's worth noting that somatic mutation analysis was also performed in those with myeloid malignancies using next-generation sequencing on a panel of 54 genes. However, the somatic mutation profile in patients with causative germline mutations was similar to that seen in de novo diseases. There were no significant differences in the prevalence of somatic lesions overall or individually, or in the number of somatic lesions for subjects with or without causative genotypes. Results of the germline mutation analysis are important in characterizing the spectrum of predisposition mutations in this unselected cohort of adult patients with cytopenia and hypoplastic bone marrow. And, in a commentary, Lucy A. Godley of Northwestern University says the results of this study are also clinically relevant. Specifically, Godley says the study has relevance for genetic testing of adults with unexplained cytopenias and hypocellular bone marrow. Current clinical practice guidelines recommend germline genetic testing whenever the pre-test probability of a positive finding is greater than 5%. And in this large study cohort, deleterious germline mutations were found in nearly 7% of cases. Therefore, Godley says, genetic counseling and testing should be offered to a larger population of patients, now including patients with unexplained cytopenias and hypocellular marrows, based on the results of this study. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. The final article is titled, Limited Plasticity of Monocyte Fate and Function Associated with Epigenetic Scripting at the Level of Progenitors. The first author is Catherine Ree of Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Myeloid cells are the cornerstone of innate immunity, and monocytes in particular are key contributors to innate immunity, playing major roles in phagocytosis, cytokine secretion, and antigen presentation. It's also known that myeloid cells are heterogeneous in both function and cell surface marker expression. In humans, Monocytes are typically subdivided into classical, intermediate, and non-classical subsets based on CD16 and CD14 expression levels. But the monocyte landscape is more complex than those three categories. Recent research has identified that monocyte function varies based on the progenitor cell type. That is to say, granulocyte monocyte progenitors, or monocyte dendritic progenitors, produce functionally distinct monocytes and recent studies have uncovered new blood monocyte subsets based on cell surface markers or gene expression profiles. 
What Drives Myeloid Cell Heterogeneity is the focus of our current research article. The prevailing model is that monocytes are highly plastic. They readily convert from one type to another based on external cues in the environment. The observed plasticity of monocytes may be due to the adaptability of individual cells, but perhaps it's a collective property of the whole cell population. Rhee and colleagues addressed questions of monocyte heterogeneity and plasticity using an ex vivo model system that allowed them to expand and control the differentiation of individual myeloid progenitors. That model system allowed them to clonally expand individual progenitors and differentiate them into monocytes. They evaluated the descendants of clones using functional, transcriptomic, and epigenomic analyses. Based on those results, they identified four monocyte subtypes with specific molecular features and distinctive abilities. RNA sequencing analysis predicted surface marker expression that allowed for the identification of these classes. In both mouse and human blood, CD49F and CD54 were markers that distinguished these monocyte classes, termed class 1 through class 4 in the article. These monocyte classes had differing capacities regarding production of inflammatory mediators following stimulation with lipopolysaccharide. For example, class II monocytes, characterized by low surface expression levels of CD49F and CD54, exhibited poor induction of TNF-alpha and interleukin-6 in response to stimulation. They also differed in their functional abilities following infection. Class III monocytes, characterized by high CD49F and low CD54 expression, excelled in E. coli phagocytosis and killing, but exhibited a poor performance against Staphylococcus aureus. Class I monocytes, characterized by intermediate CD49F and high CD54 expression, excelled in activity against both pathogens. Of note, the monocyte classes best suited to killing the specific bacteria were found to accumulate at the site of infection. Furthermore, the differentiation fate of the monocyte descendants was epigenetically scripted in their progenitors, according to the investigators. Analyses of chromatin configuration data indicated that functional fate was related to chromatin accessibility that was established at the progenitor level, though possibly even earlier and this fate had little flexibility once differentiation began. In vitro and in vivo analyses showed that the descendants had inherent and restricted characteristics that didn't shift, even in response to stressors. There was little to no evidence of interconversion between classes under conditions of homeostasis, nor in conditions of stress that included irradiation and infection. In a commentary, Helen S. Goodridge of Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California, says this study provides evidence that individual monocytes and their progeny may not be as plastic as previously thought. What does that say about the apparent flexibility of monocytes in response to stimuli? Goodridge says the data suggests it reflects selective recruitment of specific monocyte subtypes from a heterogeneous group of pre-programmed myeloid progenitors, rather than some functional adaptation of more generic cells. The four classes of monocyte identified in this study have specialized functional properties, Goodridge says, and they appear to be independently selected in response to specific challenges.
Goodridge said that further work is needed to relate these four monocyte classes to previously defined subsets. Notably, the four classes of monocytes identified in this study did not correspond to the classical, non-classical schema. In each class, investigators found varying frequencies of both classical and non-classical monocytes. Although the work is early, there are potentially important implications for understanding the dynamics of immune response over time. Myeloid progenitors are key players in shaping innate immune responses, raising the question of whether the distribution of specific subclasses may play a role in the dynamics of monocyte responses over a person's lifetime. And there are potential therapeutic implications as well. In her commentary, Goodridge concludes that more precise targets for manipulation of immune responses could be revealed through a better understanding of the functional heterogeneity of monocytes and the myeloid progenitors that produce them. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.